Good evening, church. So good to be with you. My name is Joel, one of the student ministers here. Um, if you'd like to turn back to that passage in Genesis, that's where we're going to spend most of our time. I don't know about you, but before last Sunday, um, I had put predestination in kind of the too hard basket for the longest time. If you don't know, predestination is that doctrine where it says that God chooses people. Um, and it's usually the first thing that Christians ask about. So I was out at a party last night, and um, I met a new Christian, and I loved seeing his joy. But our conversation quickly turned to, um, how about the indigenous people? What about them? How about the people who never heard about Jesus, those um, people groups that never heard about him? It's the first thing in the youth group Bible study. Every single rabbit hole is predestination. But it's also personal for us. If God chose me, why doesn't he choose my best friend or my mother or my sister? And after last week, God forced me to take it out of that too hard basket and think about it for a week. Then I read this week's passage. My, th- my first thought was, What a mess. But the irony was, I said that while I was sitting in my comfort of my home, my reading chair, sipping my coffee with my favorite coffee beans. That moment, God was telling me, and I felt like an armchair Christian at that moment, an armchair theologian. I couldn't relate to this, and I I wanted to, I guess, look at the, the origin of that phrase, armchair. It kind of, the first... I guess real popular use was the armchair quarterback. If you don't know that the quarterback is a position in NFL, he has the ball every possession and he controls the game pretty much. He's looking for gaps or looking where the best player to do it. That's a real quarterback. But the armchair quarterback, he's sitting at home on his TV, eating Doritos, trying to give advice to you know, the actual quarterback. Oh, I knew better than you thinking he knows better. See, I think it's easy to make judgment calls when you're not on the field. And I think it's easy to question God's ways when we have a skewed view of the world, when we forget that the world is not that simple. Well, I'm glad that the passage following about God choosing people is about God's great love. We need to be reminded of God's love. But we won't probably properly grasp God's love if we're sitting in our armchairs, in our comfort zone. We've got to get out and see what life really is, what the world is really like. And we're going to meet very messy people. There's four of them. There's Jacob, Laban, Rachel, and Leah. So you have two tricksters, and then you have two sisters. And they kind of go head-to-head with each other. There's two matchups there, like a battle between two quarterbacks who are trying to control the game, trying to get their life. Scene one, the two tricksters. We have the promising young one, Jacob, going against the veteran, Laban. Because of the mess they've caused, scene two, there's a clash between the younger, more loved sister and the older unloved sister, Leah. As we delve into the lives of these messy people, I want us to recognize that this is us. 
There's parts of us in Jacob, in Laban, in Leah, in Rachel. But I also want us to watch for how God is working here, particularly his love. Okay, let's start in the first matchup, 29-14. I think the big, away, the big takeaway from this is without God, life is a mess. That's our first point. Without God, life. I might go to this mic if that's okay. Sorry. So, without God, life is a mess. At the beginning of our passage, you know, here Jacob is running away. He's running away from this comfort home, uh, comfort, uh, so the comfort from his house, to find refuge at Uncle Laban's house. But Jacob does not know what he's about to get into right now. God is going to give him a dose of reality. And if there's one thing we know about Jacob, he, is, he, he, he believes in God. He loves God. He's a Christian. He's a rat bag. He's a con artist. He's a trickster. And I think it's probably because of his broken upbringing. He grew up as the younger, unloved, unfavored child. His dad, Isaac, made it very obvious that his older brother was more loved and that his older brother he wants to give the blessing to. So you can imagine the resentment that Jacob feels in his heart as he grows up, the unfavored one. And the way that he dealt with that is he had to become a trickster. In order to get what he wants, he was kind of like that sleazy car salesman who you can't trust the word he says. He was good at fooling people. He was good at sucking people dry of their money. See, he tricked his older brother into selling his birthright for a bowl of lentil soup. And he tricked his father to blessing him instead of his older brother. Because of this, Esau was very angry and wanted to kill him. So his mom tells him, okay, Jacob, you got to leave home. Go to... Um, Uncle Laban's house for a few days. And while you're at it, go find a wife. And maybe after a few days, Esau will not be angry, doesn't want to kill you, you can come back home. If you remember two weeks ago with the Isaac and Rebecca story, there's some similarities there. The man leaves home, find a wife. They meet at the well. We didn't read that part. It's in the early part of chapter 29. And the family has negotiations with Laban. So we met Laban before. But that is where the similarities stop. This is not a beautiful story of depending on God in prayer. I think Jacob forgets about God here. The negotiations with Laban do not go well. Jacob became unprepared. He didn't bring any gifts, didn't bring any camels, none, none, none of that. And this was not an efficient trip. The servant in chapter 24 took two days. Once he found Rebecca, he got out in the morning. Jacob stayed at Laban's house for 20 years. Why? I think it's because Jacob has forgotten about God. Once he laid eyes on Rachel here, it was game over. That's all he wanted. He forgot about God. He just wanted to, that's all he wanted in life. Have a look at verse 18. The trickster matchup begins as they negotiate for Rachel. You see, you think that Jacob would kind of finesse a good deal for himself. He's done that before. But here he fumbles the ball really hard and foolishly offers himself for seven years of labor. That is an absurd amount to give up. In Deuteronomy, it actually sets the limit for the bride gift of about two and a half years worth of labor. That's the maximum. Usually you would give so much, way much lower than that, maybe around one year, one and a half years of labor. 
But here, Jacob offers more than twice the maximum. Right away, you know this guy's lost the plot. When the con man himself does not know that he's being conned, you know his head is not in the game. Enter Uncle Laban, the veteran trickster. You know he's frothing. He's not going to let this deal go down. He's going to take advantage of him. And the thing about Laban is all he cares about is money. So verse 19, tries to play it cool, pretends to add up the figures. Yeah, sure, mate, seven years is fine. Yeah, it's better if I give my daughter to you than someone else. But inside, he's, he's fist bumping. Yeah, got him, sucker. And, you know, the, the tricking doesn't stop here. Laban tricks Jacob to marrying both of his daughters and sucking him out for another seven years. Both men are living without God, trying to control their lives, chasing their own desires, willing to do anything, even if it means getting their family, daughters involved in a mess. This is what life is like without God. You know, at the end of the day, people are looking after themselves. People get hurt. People happily would hurt people to get what they want. You see, a common question that people ask from this scene is, what's up with the multiple wives thing, the polygamous, the polygamous marriage? Why is it accept- was it acceptable then? Look, I think it was never acceptable. God is clear. Genesis 2, his design for marriage, one man, one woman, for life. Just because it's written here does not mean God approves of it. And I think one clue that we know that this is the case God is not mentioned at all in Jacob's finding a wife adventure in chapter 29. Compare that to chapter 24 in the Rebecca story. God was mentioned everywhere. The servant was praying. He praised the Lord. Even Laban praised the Lord. Just because because God is not mentioned here does not mean he's present. This is a hint from the author to tell us that Jacob is doing this all without God. Jacob is learning We learn, without God, life is a mess. And what I find heartbreaking is that this mess trickles down to the daughters. Now it's Leah and Rachel have to deal with it. If Jacob thought being the unloved son is bad, try being the unloved spouse in a three-person marriage. That's Leah here. Every day she gets to see Rachel, get all the love from Jacob, while she gets ignored, gets the side eye from Jacob. Every night, Rachel gets first dibs of the bed. Leah sleeps in the other room. Whether Jacob likes it or not, his blind love for Rachel and his hate for Leah drives the messiness in scene two, which starts in verse 31. But this is where God steps in. Notice in verse 21, the Lord is mentioned. So let's move in scene two. This is where we learn that God is working in the mess. God is working in the mess. So we've just had a whole scene of no mention of God, but that changes in 31. I'll read it for us. So when the Lord saw that Rachel was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. So as a result, scene two is dominated by the explosion of babies. 
See, God is um, controlling who conceives and who doesn't conceive. At ground level, we see two sisters going head to head. But at the cosmic level, this is God building a people for himself. This is God building a people for himself. And that's what the sudden explosion of babies here. So let's go back to, to ground level. And what we see here is that God shows special concern, especially for Leah, for the outcast, by opening her womb and closing Rachel's only for the time being. Here, Leah is hated by Rachel, despised by Jacob, but God loves her. God is concerned for Leah's misery, so God does something about it. And similar to to Jacob and Laban, the sisters, they both had something that they really want. Leah, all she wants is to be loved, to be loved by her own husband. But Rachel, she's got that. All she wants is children. Now the sisters go head to head, ready to do whatever it takes to get what they want. So much so that I think that having babies has become a game to them, um, to see who can get the most children. And if Jacob was the quarterback in scene one, in scene two, he's the football. He's being passed around to and fro by the women. All the women are doing all the work here. But God gives Leah first possession. She hits the scoreboard with four babies. Verse 31. From now on, there's a pattern when a baby is born. The pattern is they name it, explain it, then they celebrate. But that celebration is kind of like a touchdown celebration. You're trying to win it over to the other sister. Hey, look, I've got a baby. And if they remember, they'll praise God. These names are significant as we go into it because it gives us an insight into their heart, what they're thinking. Let's have a look at at Leah's uh, four children, first four children. Number one, Reuben. He's the firstborn. If you look at the footnote, it says that his name means, see, son. Rachel's like, hey, look, everybody, I got a son. Rachel, look, I got a son. But she also recognizes that the Lord has done this, that the Lord sees her misery. But even though she has a son, we can tell that her real heart's desire, verse 32, surely, my husband will love me now. Number two, Simeon, similar theme. The Lord hears her misery. Number three, Levi, he's continuing to hold on to that hope. Maybe, maybe Jacob will be attached. Number four, Judah, I think that's where it changed a little bit in verse 35. Her reaction is noticeably different. She just praises the Lord. What a beautiful thing. Took her a few goes, but she gets it right here. But do you see through the, uh, the naming of her children that all she, the cry of her heart, she just wants to be loved. She wants what Rachel has. Move to chapter, thir- uh, chapter 30, verse 1. Rachel enters the scene, livid, frustrated. All she wants is what Leah has. See the desperation, verse 1. Give me children or I'll die. And in verse 2, I think it's very sad that this is, only, this is Jacob's only contribution to this mess. All he does is get angry at his wife. He says, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Sure, I think Rachel does know that God is in control, but she, she takes matters in her own hands anyway. So she grabs her servant, Bilhah, gives it to Jacob, hey, sleep with him, get children for him. Through that method, Rachel gets two children. Now the score is 4-2 for 
still there. Verse, verse 6, the names of her children tell the, the, her struggle. Dan, God has vindicated me. Naphtali had a great struggle, a struggle with barrenness. Seems like Rachel's strategy is working here, giving someone else to have babies for her. But the problem with that strategy is, whatever Rachel can do, Leah can do too. See here, God has also closed Leah's womb, so she grabs her servant, gives her to Jacob to get her some children, and she gets two more as well. One thing we notice in the naming of Leah's children is that she's slowly forgetting about God. Remember with Judah, she was praising the Lord, but then she gets a dose of God's blessings and love. She starts praising herself. Verse 11, what good fortune. How lucky I am. So lucky. Verse 12, how happy I am. I'm so blessed. Maybe the women will look up to me and call me blessed too. Sounds like an Instagram post if I've ever seen one. Hey fam, look at me, I'm so happy. My life is all together. Follow me if you want to be blessed. I don't know about you, but I think this back and forth is a bit intense. I need a break. Verse 14, I think they break here for half time. I'm trying to think about the next strategy. And what's the plan now? God has made both barren. They've tried that surrogate mother thing. What do they turn to here in verses 14 and 15? They turn to drugs. Reuben, Leah's eldest, goes out and finds these plants. It's called mandrake plants. This was known in the ancient world as a fertility drug to help barren women conceive. But Rachel, she's the most desperate here. She hasn't had a child of her own. But the thing is that she has the marriage bed. Leah has the drugs. At halftime, they kind of try to make a deal. Rachel says, okay, how about this? You can spend one night with Jacob if you give me one of those drugs. You know, she thought that, work, that it won't work because they're both barren. But God had other plans. Rachel's plan actually backfires on her, and Leah's the one that gets children. She gets three more, and the score is now 9-2 to Leah. Verse 22, it's almost full time. Until Rachel is desperate, losing all hope. She's tried everything. She tried surrogate mother. She tried drugs. Tried doing it on her own, nothing. On top of that, it seems like Jacob prefers Leah now, now that she's having children. Now Rachel is the despised one. Now Rachel is the rejected one. But look at how God works. Just as he loved Leah when she was in there, God loves Rachel too. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. You see, in the final seconds, God comes in the clutch and gives Rachel her own baby. His name is Joseph. Final score, 9-3 to Leah. Look, Rachel might not have won the baby count, but you can rejoice she has a child of her own. God has taken away her disgrace. Man, what a messy family. Messy family. Every single person here is desperate, dissatisfied, dysfunctional. No one deserves the credit. Everybody is ugly. God is working in the mess to build a people 
for himself. Yes, God chooses people. But God chooses to love the broken. And God's love is different to the world's love. And I'm so glad that it is. The world says the older, the bigger, the better person gets the blessing. And the younger, let's reject them, the smaller. But God flips the script and says, no, I'll choose the younger if I want to. It's God's grace. The world says, I will love the lovely, the beautiful, and reject the unlovely. God flips the script again and says, no. This is the type of love that is at the center of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27, which will come up on the screen. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. You see, even here, when we, when we lie and bicker and fight, God still chooses to love you. And church, I don't think we'll truly see how much God loves us, loves you, if we have a skewed view of life stuck in our comfort zone or maybe blinded by our desires. And as we step out into the world, hope we see what the world really is and humble us, humbles us. Life is messy and we're messy people. There's so many things in the world that we don't see that only God sees and he knows what's best. And you know, Rachel and Leah had no idea how much God loves them to bless the world. Look at Rachel's child, Joseph, verse 24. You know, God raised up Joseph to be this family's first savior figure. You know, without Joseph, this family would have just extinct. And we'll come to Joseph's story in two weeks. God hasn't forgotten about Leah's offspring either. See, Judah, God uses the line of Judah to bless the world with the ultimate savior, Jesus. Without Jesus, we'd have no hope at all. Without Jesus, we would not know how much God loves us who has entered us into this messy world. I don't know about you, how you feel about introducing your family to people, whether you're proud or embarrassed. But when Jesus has to introduce his family, he's got to mention these people. That's exactly what happens in the first page of the New Testament. Matthew starts at Abraham, mentions Jacob, mentions his brothers, and that messiness continues for 28 generations until it gets down to Jesus. This is a massive comfort. Jesus knows what it's like to be in a messy world, in a messy family. But it's also humbling. We have nothing to be proud of, to boast in, and if there's any pride or praise, it is only in Jesus Christ. Continue reading from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 28. Come up on the screen again. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, at is, is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. That was in Matthew and 1 Corinthians. We'll fast forward to Revelation 7. We don't have to turn there. But this Revelation 7 shows God's people in its final form. 
it has the number 144,000. That's a figurative number, so in the complete number of people. But if you read then, notice the building blocks of that people. It's all these names we've read. It says from the tribe of Judah, 12,000. Reuben, 12,000. Gad, 12,000. And that list keeps on going on and on. That tells us that God planned this all along, that he's going to build a people around this nation. And we're a part of that. And in that scene in Revelation 7, what they're doing is boasting in the Lord. In the middle of that is Jesus praising him. But that's our final form. Praise God that that's where we'll be. But I want to bring it back to today. God is also working in the mess to build me. God is working in the mess to build you. Since the end game is being with Jesus, Revelation 7, then he's going to make you more like Jesus. If God didn't take Jacob through this trial, he would have stayed a ratbag. He would have stayed a con artist. But through the mess, God was shaping Jacob. He met Laban. It's like looking in the mirror for him. Now he knows what it's like to be on the other end of his antics. But what we read here is also Jacob at his lowest. He sold himself find a wife, even hired himself out to sleep with his own wife. But he changed his ways. After this, he changes his ways and comes back to trust God again. I think this is an invitation for us to also come back to the Lord, to trust in him, knowing that he's in control and he's working to build you up. Church, and as we finish Tonight, I want to invite you to reflect on that, to reflect on God's love for a moment. Again, we'll say a prayer together. I think those are, there's invitation cards that you'll find there. Um, there'll be a moment where we get to fill that out. But before we do that, maybe there's, you've never accepted God's love before. I wanted to say that God loves you. And he's inviting you to turn to him because he's in control. Or maybe you're a Christian. Maybe you've forgotten about God chasing the things of this world, following your desires, or maybe you've locked yourself into your comfort zone, losing perspective in life. Well, this moment now is a chance for you to renew your love for Jesus. So as you bring out those cards and there'll be some music to help you reflect and we'll come back and say a prayer. Dear God, thank you for creating me to love and to be loved. Thank you for your extraordinary love for me. Thank you that Jesus loved me enough to die in my place. Sorry that I have rejected your love, questioned your love, sought love in the things of this world. Please forgive me. Please come into my life. Please help me to live from this day forward, knowing that I am loved by you. In the name of Jesus, my Lord and my Savior.